Thank you for joining us here on Manufacturing Talk Radio. I'm Tim Grady with Lou Weiss, who is the founder of Manufacturing Talk Radio. And we are doing interviews with the Institute for Supply Management at their conference in Orlando, Florida, which is taking place at the moment, and posting those interviews on our website. And some very exciting things, and, and one in particular that you should pay attention to is our interview with Credit Risk Monitor. It, it might wake you up, it might scare you to death, Lou. I took a Valium a little while ago, so I think it'll be okay. Uh, it, interesting stuff, and uh, I, I, we really will enjoy Tom Derry, uh, press CEO of the Institute of Supply Management, who uh, you and I know for about 10 years. Uh, and great organization. It's been around since uh, uh, 100 and some odd years. The uh, Jay Shipman uh, Award uh, was started in 1931, which they are going to have the award winner today. And uh, actually, we will be interviewing that gentleman. So stick around and uh, listen to what everybody's got to say. It's a wild and woolly place that we're living in right now. It, it certainly is. And so, as Lou said, stay tuned. Thanks for joining us here on Manufacturing Talk Radio in our interviews for the Institute for Supply Management Conference in Orlando, Florida. Okay. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. I'm Tim Grady, and I am here with Lou Weiss, who's the founder of Manufacturing Talk Radio, he is also the president of All Metals and Forge Group, a manufacturer of open die forgings and seamless rolled rings. You can find at steelforge.com. And talking to us today are Jerry Flum and Mike Flum of Credit Risk Monitor. We've talked with Jerry before some years ago on a show when we were at the ISM conference, which is where they are now in Orlando, Florida. And we're excited, Jerry, that you and Mike have come out with a new product called Supply, let me get it right now, Supply Chain Monitor, is that correct? That's it. Yeah, like all of a sudden that, we're going to be relevant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that sounds like neat stuff. Be ISM, right? Yes, right. So, uh, Mike, give us an idea of what is Supply Chain Monitor. Yeah, so, you know, we, uh, as you guys know, you know, we've been in the credit space for 22 years, and uh, we started coming to ISM about eight years ago or so. And over that period of time, uh, we've seen our procurement user, you know, expansion significantly on that platform, uh, now making up approximately 25% of our recurring revenue. So about three years ago, we uh, came to you know, our decision table and said, we probably need to come up with something that's much more you know, dynamic and really geared towards that use case rather than saying, hey, here's something that works for trade credit. Why don't you use this to look at the, you know, the, the, the vendor side instead of looking at the customer side? So um, we kind of started having some conversations with our existing uh, procurement users on credit and kind of said, what are the things that are really important to you within the service and what are the things that we should be developing? Um, and about three years of hard work and beta testing and re redeploying a lot of code and updating our API, here we are. So 
Um, it's a really dynamic system. It, uh, it's very easy to implement. You know, you send us a supplier list via CSV with uh, metadata, if you've got it, like things like spend, uh, supplier location, uh, criticality, you know, direct, indirect. We also support some other features, but we'll upload that, match it to our database. Um, we've got about 3 million business records worldwide now. Um, we've got predictive risk scores for bankruptcy on about 5 million businesses and uh, tier two payment information on about 4 million uh, worldwide. So take all that and we kind of, uh, you know, plug it in and we actually give you options to do a lot of different interesting views and cuts of that information. So if you're interested in understanding your supplier coverage on a risk basis level, we can do that for you. We can segregate it by geography, segregate it by industry. We have some really great peer analysis features in the event that you wanna find some alternative suppliers. Uh, you can compare them on over five different scoring models plus over 40 individual uh, financial ratios. So a uh, really interesting way to look at it graphically. The other nice thing about it is, you know, when we started Credit Risk Monitor, or Jerry started Credit Risk Monitor, I won't take credit for that. I was around, but uh, I wasn't necessarily involved at that point. Um, but, you know, that, that service is designed for when we launched in 1999, everybody had like dial-up modems, right? So you weren't sending large packets of data. You're not, you know, everything was very much tabular. Let's keep it as minimal as possible on loads. Now with everybody with broadband and wide, wide band coverage, you know, we, we are able to develop a lot more uh, graphical interfaces, mapping functions. We support, you know, weather and natural disaster alerting. Um, variety of things you know so it's, it's really exciting we we're very happy to be bringing it to market so far you know we've been in beta for better part about a year uh getting some of the kinks out and uh so far you know the response has been great uh, we're still a you know a financial focused business right we're bankruptcy that's what we do really well but it's nice to see some of those other supply chain functions coming in whether it be macroeconomic geopolitical you know cybersecurity is obviously at the top of everybody's list so things like that well, I'm glad. I'm glad to hear. I'm glad to hear that someone does well in bankruptcy. <laughs> you, well, you know, it's funny. Uh, the the 2020 uh, COVID you know expansion was obviously a good year for us in terms of people remembering there's such a thing as bankruptcy. Period. You know, it's been a yeah. while since uh, anybody was really going bankrupt. But you know, the come down of that was really interesting for 2021. Uh, we we did fairly well in 2021, but as far as bankruptcies, I think we had. 13 or 15 total in the U.S. that that year versus like 89 in the year prior. In public companies. Public companies. Public Sorry, companies. I, I should be clear. And if we count privates, which we follow, you know, it's a lot. But uh, yeah. let me ask you a question. Um, for your, the sake of your customers' use of your product, are there ways that you can filter the type of customer, for example, uh, by SIC code, geography, uh, country, and so on. Yeah, so uh, we have actually specific views for that sort of cut, right? So if you wanted to look at your exposure to a particular continent or actual, you know, country, working on getting it down to state levels like that, especially for defense contractors that are looking for congressional spend, that kind of thing. Um, but what's really interesting is we integrated into the entire platform a function that we call Change View. And that actually has all of these filters built into, into its, its system. So you can be looking at any kind of cut of information, whether it's looking at a supplier list and mapping function, or even uh, you know, if you're looking at, one of the things I like to do is look at critical suppliers in an industry breakdown and then go to a geographic cut so I can look at what's going on in a particular region for a particular type of industry with my critical suppliers. 
right? Or maybe even just my high risk critical suppliers. When I'm trying to find alternatives, you know, do yeah, that all the time. Find alternatives. You know, if you've got some suppliers that are looking uh, not so good, um, this allows you to go in and take a, a sick code or a sick code by country or however you want to slice it and we can show you all the other companies in that community and we're going to give you pretty detailed information who's in good shape or not not good shape you know we believe at the end of the day you don't have to spend a lot of time looking at alternative suppliers who financially are insecure because what's the point let's limit what we look at to financially secure it and then go through uh, some of the different matrix that you need, that labor, environment, uh, you know, all the, uh, but why spend time until you at least have somebody who's in good shape? Uh, the question being, if somebody is not in financially good shape, they're going to cut back over time, not because they're bad people, but they're going to cut back on R&D and quality control and, you know, just because they need to survive the company and they're going to watch their cash. And so as a, as a supplier, I don't want to spend that much time with it. You know, I, uh, yeah, I think it's about the prioritization, right? If you're going to be looking at the first domino, at least ensure that you're not going to be hit with a bankruptcy before you start digging in on, you know, do they have the right governance and environmental you know, policies, right? It's great. I, I'm not trying to say that that's not something people should be focused on higher diversity, but to the same extent, like if you're working with a diverse supplier, you go out of business in the next 12 months, that's not something you want to get into a supplier relationship on, Right. Diversity and sustainability are important and certainly quality, you know, but at the same time, you got to start with somebody who's going to be around in the next five years before you really start investing in tooling and all that other stuff. We have one other critical function and that is we're going to monitor in real time every one of these suppliers for you. You know, we're, you're going to be getting a heads up on the most current, we run our scores every night. Yeah. They're incredibly predictive, uh, and so we're gonna we're not only gonna help you pick new ones or or discard bad ones. Those you pick, finally, you pump you give us the names of what you're spending. We'll be on top of that. You, you can you don't need to have somebody inside your company uh, dealing with all, all this stuff. You can get the summaries of what we're saying every day, every night. The uh, types of clients that you have, do they tend to be large, medium, small, mixture of all? Uh, I think it's a, it's a mixture of all. We definitely tend to be skewed towards larger businesses, you know, at least on the, on the credit risk monitor platform. We've got over 35% to the Fortune 1000 plus thousands of other large companies worldwide. But we do have, you know, SMB businesses as well. It really depends on, you know, I think... Where we, where we work really well is where you're exposed to public companies. Not to say that we don't have private company information, but when it comes to public company coverage, we're best in breed and the, the first score analytics capturing 96% of bankruptcies at least three months before they file. And we do it every night and it's telling you activity of a bankruptcy event in the next 12 months. That's so. quite interesting that most people don't really understand the depth of dependency on public companies. In other words, you could be dealing with a division or subsidiary of a public company and not even know it. And uh, our service now is covering, I don't know, 70% of the gross national product. In other words, the sales of the companies we're analyzing is 70 some odd percent of the world's gross national product. Mm -hmm. 
everybody kind of uses us, but there's no doubt larger companies. You know, it's really quite strange because we have a philosophy in our company and that's what grew it this way is, and that is we want the utility of what we sell to be worth more than the price. In other words, we actually live that. Uh, for $20,000, we're in all you can eat total world coverage and it's world-class. And uh, that, in this case, for the new service, uh, you're gonna get um, a license and 10 or 20 uses for, you know, you pick who you want to send it to and, or want in this system. So we're, we're designed uh, not to be uh, super expensive. Uh, we're more designed to, uh, we're the best bang for the buck. And I mean, we, we are, you know, we're a subscription business, right? So for us, uh, it's, it's, I don't know what just happened with the lighting here, but uh, anyway, we're a subscription business. So for us, the most important thing is actually retention, right? So when it comes down to that value proposition, we want to make sure that that's clear and present in everybody's mind when they're dealing with us. So it's gotta be at a price point where you're really getting access, right? Yeah, there's, there's no way for us to make money if we sign you. Uh, we're not gonna make money until the second or third year. So we have very long subscriptions because people, you know, they see the utility uh, and we have great service. So Jerry. <laughs> Jerry, as you look at these suppliers, and I'm always thinking in terms of, I am a manufacturer here in the US, and I wanna look at my suppliers in Asia. And I'm not necessarily using what we in the US know as a public company. Mm -hmm. How are those companies in Asia classified and how deep can you go on those? Well, Asia for us, I'd rather switch the question a little bit and then we'll get back to Asia. Uh, our coverage of private companies in, in Europe, for example, uh, we, we have, uh, you know, coverage on several million companies who are private because we have all the publics. Um, uh, so we, we really capture a lot of data. Asia is a little different and for us. Mm -hmm. uh, a part of it is, uh, you know, the big bopper in Asia is China. And, right. You know, China is uh, China is peculiarly uh, centrally focused and planned, and uh, so there's okay, but uh, it really depends on you know what does the government want to do. You know what I'm saying? It's I think it's yeah. just a way to get that data outbounded. It's a market that's very contrived. They don't want that information on private businesses getting outside their borders. Period. So when you do get it, it's it's typically incidentals, not necessarily broad, right? But keep in the back of your mind that uh, I, I spent a reasonable part uh, 20 years ago working with the Chinese government on coverage in China. And look, when they started out, that was a capital poor part of the world. And so uh, they didn't have a lot of internal generated capital to expand and grow their companies. So they have a pretty sophisticated public market, which I, again, I guess I deserve some credit for helping to build. And what, what happened was a huge amount of the mercantile parts of China uh, 
are, are picked up in their public companies. They're, they're big, uh, they own tons of stuff, they use incredible amounts of debt. Um, so um, it, it's important to, to get data on that segment of that society because of where they came from and who they are. It'll, it'll be interesting to see though with that, how um, you know all this discussion on um, the accounting practices and audit functions within China are gonna change with that. I know that's something in the news today because it's sounding like that's maybe being pulled up by a year for compliance. Um, so I think that'll be really interesting to see what happens if there is a big swath of delistings, right? At least in the US markets. Well, uh, again, the problem there is going to be whether a public Chinese company is going to be listed on the New York Stock Exchange or American Stock Exchange. They will remain in Shanghai. Yeah, they will remain part of the public market, and we will get. But by the way, they they uh, they put out a lot of data on their public companies because we told them, and everybody said, "Look, if you're going to attract worldwide capital, you're going to have to come to grips with this on public companies." And they desperately needed public companies in China. I'm telling you, they needed it. Maybe not so much uh, going forward because there's a whole huge change, as we all know, going on, on just-in-time inventory and sole sourcing and, you know, tariff wars and all that other good stuff that uh, maybe over the next 20 years will change it. But uh, uh, right now, we're kind of joined at the hip. Yeah. Uh, Lou? Uh, are the bulk of your clients uh, here in North America, Canada, U.S.? Yeah, I mean, we, we certainly do have some concentrations in the in Canada, but we, we service businesses worldwide. Worldwide. We yeah. cover worldwide companies in analytics and we sell to worldwide companies in analytics. Uh, we have a, a huge, we have a huge user base and uh, it's, you know, just couldn't be just the U.S. or North America. The thing too is a lot of these are multinationals, right? So they may be, yeah, they, they may be started as U.S. companies, and they have now evolved into something that's just you know almost without borders, if you will. Right. Uh, why don't we get your URL address out for our uh, audience uh, to be able to reach out and see in depth a little bit more about you? Great idea. Yeah, it's uh, pretty simple: supplychainmonitor.com. Yeah, we tried to keep it clear. Even <laughs> I can do that. But I can do it. <laughs> I'm just wondering if your either the credit risk monitor or the supply chain monitor looks at one piece of the puzzle that has become quite problematic. And Jerry, as you know, one of the big shipping companies suddenly went out of business some years ago. And a lot of goods in transit were stuck. Does credit risk monitor or supply chain monitor look at that next component, the shipping companies? From a logistics standpoint, you mean? From are they healthy? Are they uh, likely to go out of business? And no, we're gonna, the next. Yeah, we're uh, we're on top of that. That that stuff. We can't tell you that there's a boat stuck in Manila. Uh, yet, yet, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, it's funny that you that you bring that up, uh, Mike, and you may be aware of it. There is a website out there called MarineVoyage.com, and that tells you where every ship yes. on the seas is sitting at the moment. Yes, uh, fascinating. 
if you uh, eat, you can I'm sorry. You can okay. even put in a the ship number and find your ship and see where in the ocean it is yeah. or what line it's on in Long Beach, California. Yeah. 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 We, we're constantly uh, out scouring the world for other um, very, very, very good uh, specific databases of uh, suburbs so that we can integrate it into part of our service. Uh, we are, that's an ongoing issue for us forever and will always be. But you're right. That stuff today is now more and more available. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I, I think in the future, you know, we're thinking about this almost as another bolt-on module that's really more lo logistics domain, right? Do you want right. to understand what's going on at ports for wait time, maybe even transit airports for wait times, things like that? I mean, we have the weather components now, so you can get a little bit granular with some of that. I still have it. Yeah, yeah we, we so have a that was a pretty big step for us, you know, and finding, you know, quality data providers worldwide is not exactly a small task when it comes down to it. <laughs> Finding so. good data on the weather, even on the five o'clock news, is pretty hard to do. You know, I got to tell you, the weather guys have come a long way. I live in Florida, and they now tell me it's going to be raining this afternoon between 2.30 and 4.15, and the probability is 82.5%. You know, and you say, <laughs> you guys serious? And it happens. It actually happens. They've come a long way. I, I joke around by saying, if this doesn't work out, I'm going to go back to school for meteorology, because as long as I go on the conservative worst case scenario, no one's ever upset and you can be wrong 90% of the time. <laughs> True. It's going to rain and it doesn't rain. Nobody's upset. You say it's going to be sunny and it starts raining. People are pissed. <laughs> yeah, right. He's just not an engineer. You know, he's, he's a marketing guy, too. <laughs> Uh, it's great stuff. Well, we appreciate you joining us again on Manufacturing Talk Radio. Jerry? I have one thing I want to say to everybody and get it out there again. Look, this world is, as I said it to you guys several years ago, this is a severely over-indebted world, worse than it was three to four or five years ago. Incredible over-leverage makes incredible uh, volatility and increases the risk of being wrong and also increases the upside for being right. But the downside for being wrong with all this debt and the stuff that's going on in the world now, if you're a supply, if you've got suppliers, you better know where the heck they are. And you ought to also spend some time understanding what's going on at your customers. Well, this is an opening for Lou to talk about the national debt. I can see it in his head. Yeah, but I can't oh, wait to say it. I can't wait to say it. You know, the national debt, as I see it, is, aside from probably being a significantly bogus number, it doesn't make any difference. It's never going to be paid. Think about yeah, it. Think it's about what that means when somebody owns that debt. So when we say to them, look, uh, these X companies are going to go out of business. So the people who work there are going to be upset. The people who uh, sell to them are going to be upset. When you have this much debt, somebody owns that paper. And the people who own that paper are not going to get paid. They're going to buy less cars. 
they're going to buy less shirts. And so um, this is a huge problem on the demand side. I, I am telling you, you can put my name next to this. The next stage when we get done raising rates to prevent the world inflating at 37% a week, we're going to have a contraction on scale that is going to be, for everybody listening to this today, the worst they've ever experienced. The, uh, the magnitude of where these guys have gone with this stuff is just staggering. I woke up happy this morning. <laughs> I really did because in our business, All Metals and Forge, uh, we've gone through many issues over the last uh, several years, uh, and things have actually started to turn around significantly. But listening to you, I better just cash out now. No, I don't know about cash out, but you need to start to develop process and policies that deal with the highest, highest likelihood of what you will be facing. You know, it's where the puck's going to be, not where it is now. And uh, so, you know, that's the deal here. Uh, and so if you can put in place process, remember, you, you need to beat your competitors. You, you know, you don't have to you don't have to beat the Marine Corps. You got to beat your competitors. You got to run a little faster uh, to get stop the bear from eating you. But you don't have to run faster than the bear. You got to run faster than the two guys next to you. <laughs> that's right. And that's, that's the deal. Uh, so <laughs> I think that um, this is a process of making those adjustments that uh, cause survival. Now, I'm not going to tell you the survival is going to be a, a walk in the woods because before these guys who are in trouble go out of business, I will, I'm an old guy, I'm 82 years old. Let me tell you what's gonna happen because I've seen it a lot of times. Before these guys go out of business, they're going to cut prices. They're gonna cut their prices to $1 over positive cash flow. If you compete with them, you will have to lower your prices. That you know, your customers, if they can buy basically the same product at ten dollars and you're selling it at forty-two, you got to be really good in sales, and you can't be that good. So everybody's prices are going to come down, margins are going to contract, and it'll be on a heavy layer of debt. And so for everybody, it's going to be a problem. But if you are better than the other guys then you're going to survive. And in the marketplace, when you come out of this whole thing, uh, assuming we don't open new markets in Mars or Jupiter, and we're still dealing with the Earth, uh, you're going to be great. You know, you're going to have a great business. So there's a time to, you know, make those steps now. D don't try to learn how to fire a rifle when people are shooting at you. Try and learn how to do it early. Jerry, I'm just curious about your take because you were previously a hedge fund manager and the current administration is talking about forgiving student debt, which is owned by the people of the United States. Where does that stop? I mean, should we just take all debt that's owned by the public and say, eh, we're not paying it back? Well, you know, it's a really difficult problem because they changed the code a little bit. 
Uh, these kids who have been conned into this crap by the government's policies and the colleges who can market off government bullshit with skill, uh, got these kids uh, severely over indebted and you can't write it off in bankruptcy. So it's going to follow them until uh, we put them under the ground. That is this, the, the problem with all that crap is in order to save ourselves and we get into contraction, the seventh cavalry either comes from Mars or it comes from our young people uh, getting into the workforce, making and developing and buying stuff. If you severely indebt these kids, now I'm not saying that they don't own some responsibility here, but as a macro problem, you know, the guys in government should all take a bow for being the worst managers and second generation thinkers that the world has ever seen. Uh, what, what do you want these kids to do? I mean, they're never going to get out of debt. It's too much. Unless we inflate the crap out of everything, in which case all the rest of us, you know, that's the problem. The problem is that the solutions to, to, to these really excessive policies and not well thought out is you run out of optionality. And now it's a question who in our society is going to bear the brunt of it. And it's probably not going to be those people who advocated those policies. They've already got the exit door mapped out in their brain because they are stupid, but not stupid enough not to know that look for the exit sign. Whenever I walk into uh, a, uh, a place, uh, I always try to make myself notice where the exits are. I get on a plane. I want to know where the exit doors are. I got one and a half or one second to make that decision. God forbid something happens and you, you got to make it quick and you got to make it, uh, you got to take that first step in the right direction. And so I believe the, I believe the excessive debt guys have got all that crap mapped out. It's just the rest of us who have been buying their uh, soda water who are not thinking. <laughs> You know, well, I, I'm I'm with Lou. Uh, this is a uh, this is a big problem. And by the way, uh, they're going to do every single thing they can to prevent it from collapsing. And if you look at what they're doing, uh, printing money, uh, in, even today, for crying out loud, you don't even have to print. You you hit a button, and uh, you know the Federal Reserve, God bless them, buys up all the paper. Uh, that the uh, treasury issues to buy everything. And look, I'm, I didn't run a hedge fund for a lot of years in the financing. And there's another term for what the government has done in this game, and it's called the Ponzi scheme. <laughs> we are, that was my term. Oh, we you're, are talking, largest you're, talking about, scheme. you're talking about cryptocurrency now. Uh, <laughs> I think crypto has a place in the world because it's at least a rudimentary step to disenfranchise the government's ability to print. You know, it's, it's at least the marketplace, not saying there aren't a whole bunch of goofy men and women who might be involved in it, who are, you know, you know uh, Jesse James' great-grandchildren, but at least there's an attempt 
to deal with the real guy whose name is Ponzi, and that's the government's. I think one thing to clarify, though, on the crypto side is just when you start marrying that into financial markets where you've got interconnections between markets that are controlled by central banks and markets that are not, you're starting to see those correlation effects, right? And that's the scary thing is that it was supposed to be something that wasn't collateralized with you know, dollars or stock or anything else. And yet that's exactly what's happening. And when you look at the drops in it, it's all about margin calls in other markets, right? I'm having to sell out a Bitcoin because I have to make a margin call in another, another market. <laughs> um, you know, we, uh, we discussed this once before and then I'm going to shut up and let you guys go out and make a living and let us go make a living. But look, here's a, <laughs> this paper, this debt paper is owned in mutual funds, uh, ETFs, pension plans. Somebody owns the $49 trillion worth of debt paper. So let's assume it's owned by a fund. So the fund is now going to go, as rates go up, the bonds, the fixed bonds and loans, are gonna, as rates go up, the paper goes down automatically in price. In other words, rate goes up. In order for it to go up in a fixed environment of the rates fixed, the paper's got to go down so that the rate can go up. And so the next question all of us are going to face is, what does the ETF guy, how does he value that piece of paper selling in the marketplace at 70, but if he holds it till par, it'll be 100? In other words, does he count it as 100 or does he count it as 70? So the accounting guys and the government said, look, he's going to hold it to the end of the, you know, until it comes to maturity. Why do we have to mark it down? Don't mark it down. Uh, and so that means the rest of the people who are up on this are going to go in and redeem. Because if they're going to redeem that bond at a value of 100 when it's selling in the marketplace in 70, you want to get in there and get the redemption at 100. The guys who are left in the fund are going to get very badly hurt mathematically because there's not going to be the money when they want to redeem to redeem. Jerry, is, Jerry are we looking at the next mark to market and the big short? Yep, exactly on scale, but it's going to be a, uh, it's going to be on scale. You know, it's going to be on a bigger scale. I think it's a different market though. It's you're not talking about the corporate market versus the mortgage market, right? Yes, yeah, so now it's not that the, the mortgage market is any better, but yeah, yeah. the debt is right. The yeah. corporate, corporate, we find so, this yeah. sounds like musical chairs, if you ask me. Yes, it is. Well, I did say Ponty scheme earlier. So. Yes, did. you did. Yeah. And remember, <laughs> remember, we had a government agency whose sole job on the planet is to protect us from Ponzi schemes, and they missed the largest in the world. So if you're concerned of whether the guys protecting our back are really well-trained, don't worry about it. They're not. <laughs> well, and Lou, to your point, right, when you're talking about the national debt, it depends on which one you're talking about. Are we talking about the one that's the cash accounting one, or are we talking about the actual accrual? Because if we were a corporation and it wasn't the government being accrual, you'd have all the entitlements on the book already. Right, right. Like, that's a that's an order of magnitude that makes what we're looking at for debt sound like nothing, right? When you get into those factors, you know, uh, I get asked the question, "How do we get to where we are?" And I want you guys to remember one thing: when you go up to Maine or in the northern parts of our country where there are reindeer, 
The reindeer populate like crazy. And we have a natural predator in the forest called the wolf who stops them from taking over the world and running some of the political parties. Now, if you artificially kill the wolves, then the reindeers are going to go crazy. If you, if you artificially depress interest rates, that means people can borrow more and more and more and more. If I can borrow at 2%, invest it at 3 they're going to have to shoot me to stop me from doing that. <laughs> I mean, that's maybe, like the greatest game in the world. Maybe we should send all the wolves to D.C. Uh, it's not just D.C. It's all over the world. And the state governments, uh, because they can't, for the most part, print, uh, are a little better off. But, uh, you know, that's the deal. Guys, this is a debt problem. Uh, I've never seen historically, and I read a lot about this stuff. It, there's never been anything like this in the world ever before. So the good thing about it is you're living through some very, very interesting and exciting times. I got to go take a Valium. <laughs> I, I told you, if you are aware of it, you, you have a huge advantage. To that point, though, I mean, you also have to look at it in context for the history, right? Look at the bear, look at the bull market we've had over the last yeah. 20 years, right? That's on the back of this exact policy. So a lot of people have made a tremendous amount of money. The question is whether or not that actually gets converted into true wealth. Or we're talking about paper bits. And if it's paper profits and you don't lock it in, yeah, the other that's thing a hard to remember, and I certainly remember this as a hedge fund guy. When a stock is at 20 and it goes to two, that $18 difference evaporates. It's gone. So we can't buy shoes, planes, and neckties. It evaporates. Yeah, open it. <laughs> That that tie is going to be worth maybe a lot of money. <laughs> it'll be it'll be interesting to see what the alternative of you know the wealth effect is right on the downside. That that actually accelerating almost decelerating wealth effect, right? Inverse of it. I'm now not feeling wealthy because all of my paper profits evaporated, and I was counting on that collateral to justify a lot of my spending habits, a lot of my you know lifestyle choices, things like that. And, so. and that's why we built this company. We saw this coming and we said we needed to build a company that could supply a specific individual, rapid, very, very efficient data and risk metrics for people to maneuver around in, in, uh, in the environment that is more of higher and higher probability of occurring. And to that point, I mean, we, we run the business exactly what he's, what he's saying, right? We don't have any debt in our books. We are a subscription business with reoccurring revenue for that exact purpose. So we start every year with a block of cash, right? So we, we tried to really divine the company around that entire fundamental where we want to be able to survive yeah, it. We live, uh, we have cash equal to 70% or 80% of sales and we have no debt. And we uh, have no one customer that is more than one and a half percent of our revenue. And we have thousands of all. I mean, we we eat our cooking. We, uh, you know, we're not coming out with some BS story so we could sell guys. We actually believe this. And therefore, we live our life that way. I have one last question to ask. 
are you better off being in cash or invested in paper, crypto, you know, do uh, or whatever. Investing in cash is, uh, uh, I, I think of life a little differently than the average guy out there. I am, I am not concerned whether I'm getting 1% interest to half a percent interest or 3% interest. Uh, we're in such dire economics uh, that there will be an enormous opportunity to buy. However, if you've lost money, you will not have the confidence, the psychological confidence to buy bottoms. They, the news will be so scary that anybody who's semi-literate or can watch TV in your native language will be scared close to pukeville every day. That is when you need to buy. And if you've lost money, and look, I'm telling you as a hedge fund guy, uh, buying bottoms means you have to have sold tops early. I know people don't talk that way to you guys and they don't teach it that way in schools. I am telling you, I ran a hedge fund for 50 years. And these are rare circumstances when it gets this ugly and you need to think well in advance and differently. Secondly, I have, a, I have a, a house that costs 200,000 single dollar bills. If the price of the house goes down to $50,000, it is the exact same house. But now it only costs me 50,000 single dollar bills instead of 200,000 single dollar bills to buy that house. What that means is the value of money has gone up in relationship to the value of the house. So serious bear markets are serious bull markets in cash. Serious bear markets in real estate and stocks and bonds are bull markets for cash. I don't care about one or two or 3%. I know all the really brilliant financial guys and all that say, you know, you got to be invested and get a rate of return every day. Yeah, for 80% of the time, that's a smart policy. In 20% of the time, playing, trying to pick up pennies in front of a steamroll is the dumbest thing on a planet. <laughs> Are these old, old there, jokes? There's, there's some volatility traders out there who are just going, ah, you know. Keep <laughs> <laughs> your eye on the ball. Well, gentlemen, thank you for joining us. We're excited about Supply Chain Monitor, and we encourage people to go to supplychainmonitor.com. And, and I'll be further excited if there's a dashboard that tells me my ship with my goods on it. Hey, Tim, we got your name on it. Latitude and longitude. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for joining you, right? Tim Grady said yeah. logistics. <laughs> Gentlemen, enjoy the rest of the ISM yeah. 2022. Yeah. And, you uh, we'll be talking to you soon. I, you're up in Valley Cottage, New York. Am yes, I, we are. Yep. Except for when you're in Florida. 
You know, I live full time now in Florida. This young I'm, man here. I'm in New York City, but I go to Valley yeah, Cottage when uh, I'm going to work. Yeah, you know. Well, I, I'm sorry. I don't like Florida. I don't like the heat. I don't like the politics. <laughs> I don't like anything about it. So you enjoy it. Well, that's why we have air conditioning. Ah. ah. <laughs> <laughs> Gentlemen, thank you very much. Take care, guys. Pleasure meeting you, too. Bye bye. And while you're surfing around and going to supplychainmonder.com, stop by jacketmediaco.com where you'll find this episode and all of our podcasts. Thanks again for being with us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. Take care, guys. Good to see you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.